Welcome. It's always a pleasure to bring to you the teaching ministry of our pastor-teacher, Matt Shea, as he unfolds the Word of God here at Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Matt is currently beginning a series through the book of 1 Peter, discussing our proper response as believers to the sufferings of Christ that we experience. While Pastor Matt is taking a short break this Sunday, our discipleship pastor, Lou Dawson, will be preaching from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. Open now your Bibles and let's join Pastor Lou. Well, Jesus said, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And certainly Jesus' words in, in Matthew's Gospel have to be some of the most precious words in all of Scripture. And in various ways, they're, really, they're applicable to all of us. As we'll see this morning, they're an open invitation to come to him and find rest for, for what he calls weariness of soul. How many of you have ever experienced being just mentally and emotionally worn out? How many of you have ever experienced that? Wow, everybody. Any of you feeling that way this morning? Probably some of you. The good news is that in the passage we will study today, Jesus has provided a remedy for much of this weariness that we experience. And today's sermon is titled, Find Rest in Jesus. And our text is found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. And interestingly, Jesus invited his listeners to partake of his rest in the midst of some of the most insane conflict that's even imaginable. And to properly understand Jesus' offer as well as the, the conflict that was surrounding it at the time when he offered it, we need to have a look at a little bit of background. Matthew wrote his gospel account to convince his Jewish readers that Jesus was the promised Messiah King of the Old Testament. And thus, as we read through our passage that we're going to look at today, we have to understand that most of Jesus' readers were obviously Jewish. In Matthew chapters 1 through 3, Matthew introduces his Jewish readers to Jesus, the Messiah King. In chapters 4 through 7, he helps his readers to understand and see the authoritative teachings of Jesus, the Messiah King. In chapters 8 through 10, Matthew provides miraculous evidences from the life of Jesus to substantiate his claim as the Messiah King. And starting in Matthew 11, he acquaints his readers with a, a growing storm of opposition that is stirred up by Jesus as he teaches. And our text fits right into this stormy section in, in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 19, Jesus is talking to a large group of Jews and Jewish leaders somewhere up in the Sea of Galilee area. And I want to show this to you. Notice what he says to them. He says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. And we sang a dirge. And you didn't mourn, for John came eating, not, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he's got a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, 
the friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Have you ever watched a group of children play together and they, they kind of invent their own little games? You know, they, they come up with these games and they develop their rules and then, and then they start playing. Well, almost without fail, if you've ever watched this, one of the children will violate the rules, okay? And what happens after that? At that point, usually you hear one of them running to their mom crying, Mommy, Mommy, Johnny is cheating and not playing fair. Ever heard that before? Well, in a similar way, Jesus is essentially accusing his Jewish listeners of acting just like the children in this example. You see, the Pharisees had their, their, own, their own little set of rules about how everyone should live. And actually, this list of rules, it, it, it really wasn't very little. There were over 600 nitpicking rules that they had to follow. And if a Jew didn't adhere to these standards, they were criticized for not following the rules. And this is exactly how the Pharisees responded to both John the Baptist and to Jesus. They weren't following the rules. Now let me ask you, how do you think that Jesus' accusation went over with these Jewish leaders that were in his audience? How do you think it went over with them? Yeah, they weren't real happy about it. And this criticism had to kind of irritate them and probably start to get them a little bit worked up. Well, Jesus didn't stop there. You look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24, and he said this, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented a long time ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles which occurred in Sodom had occurred in you, you would have they would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, in this passage, Jesus pronounces disaster on the Galilean cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And that's what it means when he says, he says, woe to you. And as detailed in, in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus had done a number of miracles in these cities. Yet, in spite of seeing all these miracles, most of the Jews did not repent and believe. And Jesus is absolutely torching them for their unbelief. And as a result, Jesus indicated that in the day of judgment, they will receive greater punishment than the wicked Gentile cities of Tyre, Sidon, and yes, even the most wicked city of all, Sodom. And again, let me ask you, how do you think the Jewish leaders must have responded to this? Forget they're getting worked up even more. You know, and when combined with Jesus' previous accusation, these leaders had to start be getting very, very angry. So keep in mind that we look, as we look at our text today, a significant portion of Jesus' audience was already 
pretty close to steaming mad. If you haven't already done so, turn to Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, and read along with me. At this time, with his readers steaming mad, I might add, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. So in these verses, Jesus begins praying, and specifically we see that Jesus praises the Father. Jesus praises the Father for three different things. First, in verse 25, we see Jesus praising the Father for his sovereign control over all things. And indeed, the rest of Scripture reaffirms that the Lord is indeed control over everything. In Psalm 135.6, the psalmist says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep. And in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, the Lord himself declares, I am the Lord and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Now in the second part of verse 25, Jesus praises the Father for concealing his true identity as Messiah King from from prideful men. Notice that Jesus refers to these men as the wise and intelligent. Now this phrase was aimed directly at the unbelieving Jewish leaders that he had just scorched back in verses 16 through 24. You see, they thought that they were wise and that they had it, they got it all figured out. They were self-righteous, thinking that their works would earn them favor with God. But as Jesus pointed out in other places, these people were actually total hypocrites. Now this phrase, wise and intelligent, it's absolutely dripping with sarcasm. And the Jewish leaders undoubtedly understood that this sarcastic assessment was pointed directly at them. And I'll ask you again. How do you think these Jewish leaders were feeling about the time of this sarcastic remark? The level's getting even higher now. The blood's beginning to boil. Now in the last part of verse 25, Jesus praises the Father for revealing his true identity as Messiah King to humble men. And in verse 26, he affirms that such an arrangement Please the Father. Now notice that Jesus praises the Father for revealing his identity to infants, as he calls them. Now Jesus is obviously using this phrase here figuratively. The Greek word here refers to children that are about the age of four, three, four, five, right in that age. You know, in such children, they're simple, they're unpretentious, they're trusting, they realize they're helpless, and they're not ashamed at all to ask for help. In a word, they're humble. And the Lord is pleased to reveal his son to people with such childlike humility. And in these verses, we hear echoes of Jesus' previous teaching in Matthew. Remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in the context of this passage, I believe Jesus is saying that the Father reveals his identity 
as Messiah King to the humble so that they might put their faith in Christ and be saved. It was Jesus' sincere hope that his listeners, as hard as they were in heart, that they would do just that. He's making the connection here between humility and saving faith. But even for those of us who are already Christians, humility is supremely important. The Lord is deeply committed to those with humble hearts. Here's some of what the scripture says on this subject. It says, though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, or he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. But to this one I, the Lord, will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Thus, as Christians, we really must cultivate humility. How do we do that? I think one of the most important ways that we have to cultivate humility is to daily seek to know the Lord. Each and every day, we must set aside time to spend in the scriptures and specifically to look at what the Lord is like. And as we see what the Lord is like, like Jesus did, we must respond in praise to who he is, exalting him. And as we do that, guess what's going to happen? Humility will grow. And in light of what he is like, we will get an accurate picture of what we are like. And again, humility will be the natural byproduct of that. You see, spiritual insight is hidden from the proud, but graciously supplied to the humble. Therefore, all of us are wise to humble ourselves before the Lord, seeking him daily. Moving on, let's look at verse 27. In this verse, Jesus quits praying and begins addressing his Jewish Jewish listeners again. He says this, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now in this verse, Jesus proclaims his sovereignty and his deity. And he proclaims three things that point to these particular attributes. First, notice that he says, he is the ruler of all things. You see, the father was pleased that his son would be the supreme sovereign ruler over everything and all creation. In fact, later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said this. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. But notice back in Matthew eleven twenty seven that Jesus referred to the Lord as my father. Unless you think that this is This is just some trivial point. Look what happened when Jesus did this in front of some Jewish leaders on another occasion. I want to show you. But Jesus answered the Jews and he said, My father is working until now and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And thus in calling God my father, 
Jesus was proclaiming his own divinity. He was saying that he was God. And the Jewish leaders among his listeners, they surely understood this. As we discussed before, the Jewish leaders at this point were already steaming mad. Now what's going to happen when he does this? Oh my goodness, these leaders, these leaders that are listening to him right now, had to be absolutely on the verge of blowing a gasket. And in fact, just a short time later, Matthew records this. The Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. And it's interesting and amazing that Jesus, he knew he was making these unbelieving Jews murderously angry. And he didn't back off even one bit. As a matter of fact, he kept going right after him. Amazing stuff. Now, second, back in verse 27, notice that Jesus says that the Father is the only one who fully knows him, and he is the only one who fully knows the Father. And in saying this, Jesus is again claiming equality with the Father. And again, his listeners understood this and had to be even more incensed. And the word that Jesus used here for know, it means full experiential knowledge gained through relationship. That was his relationship with the Father. And this was the relationship that the Father and the Son enjoyed from all eternity past. Third, notice in verse 27 that Jesus said that a relationship with the Father can only be had by the will of Jesus, the sovereign ruler of all. Here Jesus affirms what Pastor Matt was talking about a few weeks back. That's if he remembers it. But the only people that can come to know God the Father as Jesus does are the ones that Jesus chooses. No one comes to the Lord apart from the will of the Son. It's simply not possible. And without going into detail like Pastor Matt did a number of weeks ago, the scripture clearly affirms this truth in many other places. Now on the flip side of this, look at verse 28, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Here we see Jesus inviting, we see him literally imploring men to come to him. And the implication is, is that those who came to him with the right heart, a humble heart, would find rest in him. Again, this is affirmed in many places in scripture. Now, viewing all of this together, the picture that emerges is of Jesus the absolute sovereign of all, who chooses whom he desires, revealing himself to them and saving them. And at the same time, Jesus invites all to respond to his grace and holds them accountable for their response to his invitation. D.A. Carson commented about this This paradox, he said this, and I thought it was a good comment. He said, Scripture, in fact, regularly 
and without sense of contradiction, juxtaposes the themes of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And we have to be content with this antinomy, as it's called. Since Scripture teaches both God's absolute sovereignty and man's responsibility for his own choices. One commentator summed this up issue, this whole issue quite well, and I want to share it with you. The history of the church is littered with attempts to reject or subordinate one of these two themes that we've just talked about to the other. Both themes must be affirmed and affirmed simultaneously in order to be true to Scripture and to Christian experience. Summarizing this portion of our text, Jesus is God the Son, sovereign over all creation and the exclusive way to know God the Father. Moving on, let's look at verse 28 through 30 as Jesus pleads with his listeners. He said this, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, unpacking these verses, Jesus issues three plea commands to his listeners, and then he gives three reasons why they should respond in obedience. Well, first let's look at the three plea commands here. The first one is in verse 28. We've already talked about it a bit. Jesus pleads with any of his listeners who are weary and heavy laden to come to him. Now, the first question that comes to mind is, why would any of Jesus' listeners be weary and heavy laden? Well, as we talked about earlier, the Pharisees had taken the simple, straightforward Mosaic law and had expanded it to hundreds of regulations that were impossible to keep track of, let alone do. And to make matters worse, the Pharisees had actually afforded these these regulations even more weight than the Mosaic law itself, which is really amazing. In the gospel accounts over and over again, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of doing things that are unlawful. That's what they say. And in reality, these actions were not violations of the Mosaic law, but they were violations of the Pharisees' little regulations. And Matthew actually cites an example of this at the very beginning of the next chapter, chapter 12. As you can imagine, struggling to earn salvation by obeying this this labyrinth of laws was, it just wore you out. It was a burden that was just too heavy to carry. It brought about nothing but weariness. And that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 28. He's appealing to those among his listeners who are worn out trying to follow the Pharisees' system of righteousness. He's pleading with them to forsake this ridiculous system and to come to him. And Jesus' second plea command builds on the first. Look at verse 29. In addition to taking his yoke 
upon themselves. He tells his listeners, well, again, to take his yoke upon themselves. Now, this metaphor would have been familiar to his listeners in two different ways. Living in a society where most everyone farmed, they were familiar with the yoke used to harness oxen. This yoke allowed the master to guide the oxen into useful work. But Jesus' listeners also understood this metaphor for another reason. The rabbis regularly encouraged them to submit themselves to the yoke of the commandments. That's what they called them, that that they had actually formulated. And the Apostle Peter actually referred to this heavy yoke in the book of Acts when he addressed the Jerusalem Council about Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. He said this, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the Gentile disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And this yoke, the the back-breaking yoke of Jewish regulations that Jesus was encouraging his, his listeners to forsake, He said, take up my yoke instead. Taking up Jesus' yoke meant submitting to his authority. It meant allowing him to be Lord and master of their lives. It meant letting go of their own agendas and adopting his priorities. It meant allowing Jesus to guide them for his use and for his glory. Now, Jesus' third plea command is in verse 29 also and closely connected with the second one. Notice that Jesus implores his listeners to not only take up his yoke, but to learn from him. Now, it's interesting to note that the word that Jesus used here for learn is closely related to the Greek word for disciple. The fact is that a disciple is... A learner. That's what they are. And it's no surprise that in, in later in Matthew, Jesus commanded the twelve to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, learning them, so to speak, to observe all that I have commanded you. And I think that there are some important lessons, important lessons for us to learn from these three plea commands that Jesus gave. First, I think it's clear that Jesus taught that those who came to him and put their faith in him were saved. As we have discussed, Jesus said in verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, in the balance of Scripture, it's abundantly clear that salvation comes by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our salvation is no way dependent on our works. That said, Jesus' obvious expectation in verse 29 is that those who come to him are expected to submit to him and become learners. Is submission necessary for salvation? No. But make no mistake, submission and discipleship are the expected response of those who come to Jesus by faith. You look around today and it's not hard to see people who have put their faith in Christ, 
but are not growing in, sub, in submission to his will, and they're not growing in their relationship to him. They profess Christ as, faith, as, as their Savior, but they live lives solely to please themselves. Sadly, this actually seems to be the norm in many ways in the American church. Maybe some of you here this morning, if you were honest, would admit that that describes you. As you can see in this passage, this kind of Christianity is not what Jesus taught at all. Christianity without submission and discipleship is actually, quite frankly, it's, it's not even biblical. This is the reason why here at Rancho Baptist Church, we're passionate about discipleship. It is central to our mission as a church. And as most of you know, helping people grow to become true disciples of Jesus is both my passion and my job. And if any of you really want to grow in your submission and learning of Christ and being a disciple, call me during the week or just put a note on your registration card. It's my great joy and privilege to help anyone who deeply desires, and I stress that, deeply desires to be a true disciple of Christ. As I mentioned before, Jesus not only gave three three plea commands in verses 28 through 30, but he also gave three reasons why his listeners should respond with obedience to these commands. The first reason is at the, is at the end of verse 28. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And certainly, if a person puts their faith in Christ, they will experience total rest when the time comes that they go to be with the Lord in eternity. But in this life, True Christians also experience the rest of not having to keep the Jewish law, praise God. We're free from trying to please God by our own works. We're now his dearly loved children, his friends through the blood of Christ. Jesus echoes a similar idea at the end of verse 29. He says, those who submit themselves to Christ's yoke and become his disciples find rest for their souls. You know, we talked earlier about those who put their faith in Christ but don't fully embrace becoming his disciple. Truthfully, most of the time, these folks are some of the most unhappy people I have ever met. You see, they know the truth and their consciences are made alive to the work of the Holy Spirit. Frequently, they have varying degrees of discouragement and even depression and a host of other miseries. Yet notice what Jesus promises here in this text. He says, those who submit themselves to Christ and commit themselves to progressively becoming his disciples experience true rest for their souls. Do these folks cease having trials? No. Do they ever suffer? Yeah, you bet they do. But they also have God's peace and his great joy in their hearts and the grace to walk through the difficulties of life with the Savior at their side. They have rest for their souls. Jesus' second reason why his listeners should respond with obedience to his plea commands is found in the middle of verse 29. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You know, one of the key things to understand about submission and discipleship that that Jesus is commanding here is that it centers around a love relationship with him. 
It's like the relationship that Jesus has with the Father and has from all of eternity. And all who come to Jesus find out in the course of this love relationship that he is profoundly gentle and humble. He is by no means weak, but his infinite power is is channeled through his loving heart. And therefore, we never need to fear him. We never need to fear submitting to him because of this humility and this gentleness. And the last reason why his listeners should respond with obedience to his plea commands is found in verse 30. Jesus said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The submission and discipleship that Jesus prescribed for his listeners, it it fits perfectly because it was custom tailored for them. It was like a custom-made suit. It was carefully and measured and constructed so that it fits perfectly. And that's what Jesus meant when he said his yoke was easy. It fit perfectly. And the submission and discipleship that Jesus prescribed was also, he described it as light. And when a person puts it on, it, it almost feels weightless to the point of not even noticing it is there. In summary, corresponding to the last point on your outline there, true rest comes by humbly coming to Jesus and is sustained by ongoing submission to him as his disciple. So going back to where we started at the beginning of this sermon, I know that some of you are simply mentally and emotionally, you're worn out today. And there are very likely some worn-out folks here that, like the unbelieving multitude that Jesus was addressing, have resisted putting their faith in Christ. They're living by their rules, their way, trying hard to make it work, but finding it a struggle. If that's you, then you need to obey Jesus and come to Him You need to bring your burdens, your weakness, and your sin of resisting Him and put your faith in Christ as your Messiah and your God. And if this is something you need to do, don't put it off. Come talk to me after the service and let's do business with God right now. True rest awaits you. There's probably also some of you out there who are worn out folks that have put your faith in Christ, but have also been walking in rebellion against Him, refusing to submit and be His disciple. And if this is you, make today the day that you repent of that sin. Submit to Him and become a true follower, a true disciple of Jesus Christ. After all, true rest awaits those who take up Christ's yoke, and become his disciple. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that we so clearly see in your word who you really are. You're the Messiah, the Savior of your people, our very God. We come to you in humility like little children, worshiping you and acknowledging our own need for you. 
Lord, we submit ourselves to your loving rule in our lives. We desire to become lifelong learners of yours, true disciples. Thank you that in doing so, you promise for us the very rest our souls long for. We bless you and thank you this morning. All in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.com. Org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.